Hello everyone, welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Ambulatory Podcast Series. In this podcast, we will discuss Lyme disease. We will cover its epidemiology, clinical manifestations, diagnosis, and management. First, let's discuss the epidemiology of Lyme disease. Lyme disease is caused by the sparrowkeet of Aurelia species and transmitted by the bite of infected ixodes ticks. The incidence in the U.S. has steadily increased and is currently the most commonly reported tick-borne disease in both the U.S. and Europe. The principal vector is the black-legged tick or deer tick called Ixodes scapularis. Other Ixodes species are also important vectors in other areas of the U.S. The peak incidence of onset of early Lyme disease in the eastern U.S. occurs during the summer, in June, July, and August. Although Lyme disease occurs in nearly all states in the U.S., the predominant areas are the Northeast, Upper Midwest, and Northwest. What are the clinical manifestations of Lyme disease? We can divide the clinical manifestations of Lyme disease into early localized, early disseminated, and late disseminated. The early localized stage begins one to four weeks after the exposure. Clinical features include the classic erythema migrans rash, which is described as a bullseye or target pattern with a circular red area and central clearing with a red or dusky center. However, some patients may not note the rash or the tick bite, and that may be absent in the history. Other symptoms are similar to an acute viral syndrome with fevers, malaise, myalgias, and lymphadenopathy. The early disseminated phase begins days to weeks after the initial symptom onset. The manifestations are highly variable, and multiple erythema migrans lesions, nerve palsies such as facial palsy, migratory polyarthritis, and cardiac conduction defects such as AV nodal blocks can be seen in the early disseminated phase. The late disseminated phase includes Lyme's arthritis and neuroborreliosis or CNS disease. Arthritis is a late manifestation that can occur after months to years of an initial exposure. Co-infection with Babesia or Anaplasma organisms occurs in some patients since these organisms are also shared by the same vector. How do we diagnose Lyme's disease? The diagnosis is suspected when a patient presents with the clinical manifestations plus the risk of exposure to ticks that can carry Lyme disease. The diagnosis of erythema migrans is clinical in a patient who lives in an endemic area. For patients suspected to have early or late disseminated disease, serologic testing is warranted. Even in those situations, the diagnosis will still be mostly clinical. When testing is indicated, a two-step approach is recommended. First, we can perform an antibody test by ELISA or immunofluorescence assay and then follow up with a western blood test or a second ELISA test with a different target. Testing of cerebrospinal or synovial fluid may be needed to support the diagnosis of Lyme disease in patients with suspected aseptic meningitis, radiculoneuritis, or Lyme's arthritis. Serologic testing is not recommended in the following scenarios. A person who remains asymptomatic following a tick bite, since the pre-test probability is low, outweighed by the chance of a false positive result, which could lead to unnecessary antibiotic use. 
A person who develops erythema migrans with or without features of clinical disease following a likely tick exposure does not need to be tested. The reason is that the pre-test probability of the disease is high and treatment should not be withheld even if testing is negative. A person with subacute or chronic nonspecific symptoms such as fatigue, headaches, shouldn't be tested for Lyme's disease, and a person with prior documented history of Lyme disease. IgM and IgG antibodies may persist positive for years, and this can confound the interpretation of our future testing. Finally, let's discuss the treatment of Lyme's disease. First, early localized disease. For patients who present with a single erythema migrans lesion, treatment with oral antibiotics reduces the symptom duration and prevents the progression to later stages of the disease. Intravenous therapy is usually not indicated in this phase. For most patients, doxycycline for 10 days is the preferred option. Other agents that can be considered include amoxicillin and cifroxime for 14 days or even macrolides such as azithromycin. Second, early disseminated disease which is characterized by multiple erythema migrans lesions, cardiac or neurologic manifestations. For most patients with early disseminated disease, treatment is similar to early localized disease with oral antibiotics. However, what is different is the duration of therapy that will be usually between 14 to 21 days instead of the 10 days that we do in the early localized disease. If doxycycline cannot be used, IV sectrioxone can be considered. Isolated facial nerve palsy can be treated with oral amoxicillin or cefuroxime as well. Patients with Lyme carditis are generally hospitalized and treated with IV antibiotics such as ceftrioxone rather than oral therapy, especially those patients with symptoms, PR prolongation, or evidence of arrhythmias. The treatment duration is usually 14 to 21 days, and the antibiotics can be switched from IV to PO when symptoms are improved. For patients who have Lyme carditis but are asymptomatic, have an AV block with a PR interval less than 300 milliseconds, oral therapy can be considered. And third, late disseminated disease. This usually means having neuroborreliosis or arthritis. Treatment is usually oral with doxycycline for 28 days. However, if moderate to severe joint inflammation is present or there is minimal improvement with the initial oral therapy, IV antibiotics are recommended. For patients who have persistent inflammatory or proliferative synovitis despite oral and IV antibiotics, the use of disease-modifying agents such as methotrexate or arthroscopic synovectomy can be considered. If our patient is pregnant, the preferred agents would be amoxicillin or cefuroxime, due to the maternal risk of hepatotoxicity and the fetal risk of bone and teeth abnormalities with doxycycline. The exception would be acute neurologic manifestations or contraindications to beta-lactams in which the consideration of doxycycline use is made on a case-by-case -case basis. Thank you for listening. Please follow us in Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. We will see you in our next episode. Goodbye.